Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Exeter Expertise. Today we're speaking to Professor Stefano Ticelli on the topic of social networks. We're going to be looking at how they work within organisations and practically what can you do to develop and maintain an effective social network yourself. Stefano, great to see you today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Toby. It's a pleasure. Perhaps I could start by asking about social networks in that I think people will have different ideas of exactly what is a social network. But in terms of your research and your area of expertise, how do you define a social network, particularly, I guess, related to the organisational context? This is a very good question, Toby. A social network, if you want to keep a very simple but effective definition, is just a collection of nodes and ties. When we talk about nodes, we talk about actors, and that's a very multi-level concept. Actors can be individuals in organizations, they can be groups, they can be teams, they can be firms, they can even be institutions and societies. And when we talk of ties, we talk of the connections that people have, the one with the other, or they don't have. And in social network terms, both the presence and the absence of a tie are relevant. But I think we'll go to that in a second. There are properties that make the social networks very pervasive and important in organizations. The direction of the tie matters. If Chris goes to Joe for advice, for example, Chris is indebted to Joe for the advice she or he receives and they'd create status and power asymmetry in organization. On the other hand, if a relationship is reciprocated, there is a strong bond that two people create the one with the other. But what makes social networks particularly interesting and important in organizational context is the concept of structure. People are embedded in a structural connections in which the positions that they have matter in terms, for example, of performance, earnings, opportunity of career, and internal satisfaction in terms, for example, of trust they can be with other people or even their own perception of the organizational experience. But I'm sure that we'll talk a bit more of it with the other questions. Yes, yeah, so you're very much talking there from an organizational perspective, so people being within firms or public sector bodies. In terms of the research that you've done in this area, what would you say are some of the issues or challenges that come up in developing those effective social networks within a company? I'm really interested in my research into the micro foundations of people's social networks at work. What does it mean if we want to use normal terms? It means whether the psychology of people, in terms, for example, of their cognition, of their motivation, of their personalities, whether all of these matters in explaining the extent to which people can build successful network at work. And we found things that are really interesting. One paper that I really want to mention is that there is a fit between the personalities of people and the network positions that they occupy. In a research that we conducted, for example, with medical professionals, we found that when people are really flexible in adapting to different group situations, that's a personality trait that is called cell monitoring. And when people are guarded in disclosing self-information, that's another personality trait, which is the opposite of what is called flirtatiousness. In this case, they exhibit a sort of diplomatic personality style that is very good in the situation in which people have to bridge between different cliques, between different group of people. Interesting enough, there are different situational requirements that different network structures have. 
when people have to connect between multiple groups in a position that is called of brokers, they need to exhibit diplomatic personality styles in which they can really monitor the information they give and the way they communicate this information. On the other hand, when people are part of a cohesive network, for example, because they work in back office kind of jobs, in this case, they can be more authentic, revealing their own self to others without the risk to be negatively assessed for the way they interact with coworkers. Interesting enough, there is therefore an interplay between the psychologies of people and the natural structures that they occupy in the organization. And I really study how the complexity of this interaction predicts outcomes that people can achieve in organizations. That's really interesting, Stefano. And I guess my next question is around COVID and the pandemic. We're sat here now in March 2023, and thankfully COVID has largely abated and we're back to mixing physically. But obviously a lot of us now are working and communicating virtually. That's true of a lot of companies now. So I'd be really interested to see to what extent the COVID pandemic has affected the way social networks develop, I guess, both from a positive standpoint and also a negative one. We conducted research to examine exactly this important point. With a co-author in a paper that we just published in a very good journal, we collected qualitative data on a sample of leaders who had to face the front line of COVID in one of the most exposed areas in Europe. And interestingly, we found that people exhibit three different kinds of networking behaviors to face the kind of emergency that was represented by COVID. Some people are what we call churners, irrespective of whether they can meet people face to face or in case of COVID, they have to work online. These kind of people were incredibly good to create a large network finding the right people to go to for advice, finding the right people to go to for the resources that we were needed in that moment. But other people had another kind of networking behavior, and we call these people divergence. This kind of people were looking for conflict, constructive abrasion, even tension, as a way to construe and to develop awareness of connection and authenticity in their relationships with others. And this kind of behavior was amplified by the kind of emergency and crisis that people had to live during the COVID. A third category of people is what we call sense makers. For them, the crisis that was created during the COVID pandemic was an opportunity not to build a bigger network, but just to dig deeper in trying to understand the true meaning of their connections with others. In this case, we could say the pandemic was the opportunity to get to know the others with whom they were already connected better and in a more profound and personal way. So from your response there, it seems to me that the way different people act within social networks is very much something that it's internal, whether that's offline or, as you say, virtual. So I think you used the word magnified there. COVID magnified some of this to, to an extent. Is that true? Well, it's a very interesting question. What we know and it's something that both psychology and sociology have investigated for decades without finding a clear answer, is that people are exposed to different kinds of forces. Some of these forces come from within, and it's what psychologists, for example, call the push of what substantially is internally present in the people that emerges in specific situations. Let's imagine when we put some people who are high in this psychological trade that is called blurtatiousness, when we force them in a situation in which they cannot talk, they really show 
physical effects of this constraint. For example, their blood pressure and the heartbeat can go high. But if we have other kinds of social pressures that come from outside, they can represent the pool of the situation. When people are in strong situations, like, for example, cohesive networks in which they're forced to work closely to each other, it's quite clear that in this situation, their personality expression and therefore their individuality can be suppressed rather than magnified. So there is a tension between the push from within and the pull from outside, and in which we can say ourselves are, to some extent, metaphorically the battlefield in which these pressures exert, we can say, their strength. And the goal that we have as researchers is really to try to disentangle these kind of processes that we can define social selection or social influence, and to try to understand which of them plays a role in understanding specific situations at work and specific outcomes that people can reap in the workplace. Building on that point, Stefano, is there any evidence to suggest that the type of industry or the sector has an effect on the effectiveness of social networks? So is there a kind of industry effect to this? Social network researchers in the organizational domain had the pleasure and the opportunity to work with multiple kinds of settings. On the one end, it's quite clear that the context really determines the kind of networks that people can form and the kind of returns that they have to neural networks. Networks that are highly fragmented, for example, in which there is not so much connection between people, but there is a lot of fragmentation. We can imagine, for example, highly competitive networks in specific industries that require a lot of attention and competition. In this kind of context, it's highly likely that some people who are really good in brokering information between groups can reap important benefits in terms, for example, of performance, higher earnings, opportunity of career advancement, and even ability to generate ideas. Other networks are different. I studied myself, for example, networks in contexts in which medical professionals had to work close to each other and had to come up with common solutions, we can say, to problems related to their possibility to give care to patients. In this case, people who create bridges between others in close networks, and in the case that we investigated, they were senior clinical professionals. In this case, cohesion versus that fragmentation really provides the opportunity to generate coordination and to come up with organizational solutions. So on the one hand, it's true that this kind of context and difference in industry can provide, we can say, differentiated the different returns. But on the other hand, we observe a certain stability in the way structural configurations are reproduced and perpetuated in different organizational settings. The structure of a network tends to be, to some extent, not similar, but comparable, we can say, across different kinds of settings. Another interesting question related to this point is whether there are cultural differences, for example, across company cultures in different countries, in explaining the kind of success that people can get from their own networks. Research from more than 10 years ago found, for example, that brokerage, which is the ability to trade information between different groups, can be conducive to positive returns in Western dynamic cultures, but it's the opposite in Eastern collectivistic cultures in which brokerage can be perceived as something detrimental in general to society and to organizational culture. But again, we can say the study of the cultural differences related to different industries and to different parts of the world is still in a kind of phase in social network research that definitely deserves attention, but needs more empirical support. 
So that's an interesting area to look more closely at. On that point, I guess there's two parts to this question for me. First part of the question is, for those in charge of an organisation, so let's just say, for example, the board, from an organisational standpoint, what are the main benefits to a company of having an effective, engaged social network? The second part of the question is, what are some of the practical things that you would suggest companies need to do in order to have that flourishing social network? So the answer to the first part of the point is interesting, but is to some extent counterintuitive. When we talk about social networks, we talk about informal connections between people. We can influence these connections, but they tend to be serendipitous. People tend to form these connections based on rules that are partly beyond the opportunity of organization to influence them. As we said, reciprocity, homophily, which is the tendency to talk to people who are similar to ourselves, or even attachment based on emotional or affective states, it's something that organizations can't control. And I want to be very clear, they shouldn't even control. On the other hand, there are actions that organizations can take and practical tips to try to enable coordination and to facilitate network connection. First, they should be aware that networks are informal, which means they should give people the opportunity to create networks and to put people in the opportunity to coordinate it with each other and to try to form connections. In this case, informal retreats, even the logistic we can say distribution of spaces with coffee machine. This is something minimal, but that they really help create a company culture and can really help people to get into touch with each other and to try to form the networks. Second, which is really, really valuable, even if partly uninvestigated and unexplored, the meaning that people assign and give to connections is very important. In empirical research, we found that people tend to connect to each other, whether they share similar vocabularies and similar words. It's really important that organizations give their employees and their managers the opportunity to express themselves and the opportunity to be free and in a safe environment to express the meaning that attach to the work, their personal views, their personal values, at least of course, what concerns work-related purposes. That can really enable opportunities for people to interact with similar others and even to shape each other's idea creating a better culture. Third, there is a lot of work that has to be done by organization to try to reduce what is defined as network inequality. We have consistent evidence, for example, that minorities based on gender or based on racial ethnicity are often discriminated in the networks in terms of lower likelihood to form networks and lower likelihood to benefit from the networks that they form. In this case, organizations can really take positive actions to try to enable people and categories of individuals that for their minority status will be probably excluded from the opportunity of networking. There's a lot there on organizations and I guess for people listening they'll also be intrigued to understand as individuals what are some of your practical tips based on your research that as an individual in an organization what are some of the things that people listening to this should be thinking about to really gain the benefit of an effective social network. Again, I use this rule of the three to give three quick suggestions. First, very clearly, awareness. There is evidence that people tend to be mistaken in detecting and understanding their own networking. We are exposed to bias, and on average, we think we are more central in our networks than we are. So first tip is really awareness. Try to be aware of the real connections that you have. Try not to believe that you are more central than you are, and try really to be aware of the kind of network in which you're embedded. 
that can require acuity in understanding other connections, but that also requires a lot of self-disclosure and self-awareness in understanding your own connections. Second suggestion, which is partly related to this one, but partly different. Be aware that the structure of the network and the position in which you are in the network matters probably even more than you think for the returns that you can get from your organizational life. There is overwhelming evidence that the positions that people occupy in social networks really affect their performance, their opportunities of career, their ability to generate innovation, just to mention a few outcomes. Therefore, don't undervalue the power of networking. Be confident, but on the other hand, be really aware that networking matters, not just for your personal experience of being in the organization with others, but also for the kind of outcomes that you can get at work. And third, which is partly again related to the first and the second point, but it's something which is partly different, be also aware that the kind of others that surround you really, really can explain the kind of success that you can get from social networks. It's not all about you. It's about you and the others. In research, in recent empirical research, for example, we found that for a mathematical property, on average, our friends tend to have better networks than our own networks. Researchers found, for example, that on average, our friends tend even to have larger networks than our own networks. Selecting the people who are around you at work, to the extent that you can select them, we can say through informal and ephemeral connections can also explain the kind of returns that you can get from the network connections. Therefore, the overall message is your network is not just a matter of personal connections, it's a matter of what you can get at work and the kind of outcomes that you can achieve. That's fascinating, Stefano. Thank you very much for that. I'm sure there's some very useful pointers there for people listening to the podcast today. Thank you very much for joining us on Extra Expertise. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Toby. My pleasure. And thank you for all the people who are listening to us.